0: It's the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service and Podcast for Tuesday, July 14, 2020. On a special live broadcast today, we have Hershey Dwoskin with In the Headlines. On this day in history, on July 14, 1789, a state prison on the east side of Paris, known as the Bastille, was attacked by an angry and aggressive mob. The prison had become a symbol of the monarchy's dictatorial rule, And this event, the storming of the Bastille, became one of the defining moments in the revolution that followed. Now, the Bastille was a medieval fortress, and it was actually 30 meters high. And back in that time, it was really one of the tallest structures on the Parisian skyline. So people would have seen it from everywhere, and it became this uh, symbol of oppression. Now, although it technically was a prison, it turns out that there was only seven prisoners in there at the time. Uh, But really, the mob hadn't come there for the prisoners. There was a lot of ammunition stored behind those prison walls. Now, the uh, angry mob was outside. They tried to negotiate with the uh, prison governor. Uh, He didn't comply with their demands, so they eventually charged. And after a violent battle, they took the building. The uh, storming of the Bastille marked the uh, sort of symbolic beginning of the French Revolution. The monarchy was overthrown, and a republic was set up. About uh, 100 years later, in 1880, uh, France chose to make the storming of the Bastille their national holiday, which it is today, and that's why we are talking about it today on July 14. And since we're on the topic of July 14 and all things French, La Marseillaise was decreed the National Anthem of France in 1792 on this day by the French National Convention. The song was written that same year. It was actually written after the declaration of war by France against Austria. It was a sort of a military marching song, and it was originally entitled Chant de guerre pour l'armée du Rhin, war song for the army of the Rhine. Now, you're probably asking yourself, why is it called La Marseillaise? Well, you probably know Marseille in the south of France, but why is it named after that city? Well, it turns out that army units, volunteer army units from Marseille really liked that marching song so they called it La Marseillaise by the way one last thing if you're like me you probably have paid more attention to the tune of La Marseillaise because it's one of the best sounding anthems right and now maybe you feel this way and I feel this way because of that scene in Casablanca but there's something about the music that you know pushes all the right emotional buttons but the words I hadn't really paid attention to the words I looked them up today and sure, I knew Marchand, Marchand. I knew that part, right? But the rest of the song is awfully violent. So here, here's a paragraph uh, translated to English with the Marchand, Marchand part. Listen to this. I'll try to sing it a little bit in English. To arm citizens, form your battalions. Let's march, let's march. Let an impure blood water our furrows. That's that's a bit uh, that's a bit dark, yeah. But you know what? To mark Bastille Day, rather than play La Marseillaise, which is perhaps problematic, let's play the revolution song from Les Misérables. Yes, I know it's not the right revolution. Misérables takes place in 1832. It's not the same thing as 1792. But still, it's more family friendly. Do you hear the- This Day in History. And now to begin the show, Hershey, maybe uh, you can talk a little bit about anthems. We know that uh, the Marseillaise has a particular history. Uh, What about uh, our own anthem, O Canada?
1: You know, our own Canadian one, the French version, has got all kinds of uh, interesting phrases in it that uh, are also seen passé for today. Um... You know, the the hand carries the sword and uh, also carries the cross. So, um, you know, national anthems are kind of relics. And uh, it's something that uh, we don't change just because it's so hard to change them. Um, But my subject for today um, is about China. And um, it's very hard to ignore this subject because... China is in the news for so many different uh, and varied reasons and uh, it seems as if a kind of a cold war is developing not only between China and the United States but between China and uh, the rest of the Western world. So let's just review a few reasons why China is in the news these days. And I'll give you some background about some of the different um, issues and, uh, and um, uh, 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 problems that uh, China is, is, uh, is experiencing and China is creating at the same time. So this past week, there was a border clash between India and China. Uh, and these border clashes have been very rare, but have occurred uh, occasionally over the last 40 years. This time, uh, people were killed on both sides, so it marks a kind of an uh, escalation of this battle. Uh, Both India and China are huge, huge geographic countries, and the disputed areas between them are tiny, but each side wants to prove that it has the guts to defend itself, and so this leads to border clashes in areas which in some cases are... um, Uh, at the 15,000-foot level or 5,000-meter level or even higher in the Himalayas, on treacherous glaciers, on mountain passes where nobody lives. But the soldiers are out there to fight it out. So this border clash is one reason China is in the news. Second reason, in in an area far, far from that, in the South China Sea, Uh, the area of the ocean between China and the Philippines. Uh, China has uh, claimed a huge amount of maritime or marine territory in that uh, sea. Now that sea is relatively shallow. Uh, The area between Vietnam and the Philippines, uh, between China and the Philippines, between Indonesia and China, that whole area called the South China Sea Is full of small little rocky islands, uh, some of which are the size of a kitchen table. And China has gone ahead and built up those islands by bringing in cement and by creating as much uh, uh, structure as even military bases in areas thousands of kilometers away from mainland China itself. And China, once doing that, says this is our territory and we don't want to let anybody in without our permission. So the United States, in response, has sent in um, uh, 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 naval uh, warships to pass through the same areas just to show China that it doesn't have the exclusivity over those areas. China has been able to browbeat its much weaker neighbors like Vietnam, like the Philippines, like um, Indonesia to sort of half recognize China's uh, ownership over these territories. But there's nothing in history uh, that says that China owns these little rocks, even though China claims that it's been theirs for 2000 years. In fact, nobody has ever lived there. Fishermen from all these different countries have gone around these areas with their boats. And it's a kind of, it was always a kind of a no man's land until uh, China showed up in force. So the um, South China Sea confrontation is the second reason China is in the news. Third reason, of course, is Hong Kong. And the riots that have happened in Hong Kong uh, repeatedly over the last um, year or so have caught China's attention. Basically, the dispute in Hong Kong is one where the people who live in Hong Kong, who are seven and a half million of them, say that uh, up until now, although China is the uh, ruler or the controller of Hong Kong, Hong Kong still has autonomy under the agreement signed with Great Britain in 1997, and they don't want China to challenge that autonomy. On the other hand, China says, yes, uh, you have a certain amount of autonomy, but not as much as you think you have, and we have the right to control any kind of anti-Chinese demonstrations, anti-Chinese um, broadcasts, anti-Chinese fervor uh, that we don't like. And in fact, China forced Hong Kong to sign a kind of an extradition treaty, uh, allowing Chinese people who were in Hong Kong to be arrested and sent back to China. And so when, when this extradition treaty was was put in force, That was the beginning of the demonstrations in Hong Kong, which we saw uh, over on TV for so many times, which closed down the city. And um, those demonstrations evolved into a kind of an anti-Chinese feeling and to, um, uh, instead of blaming the Hong Kong administration, to blaming China itself for trying to take over Hong Kong prematurely. Uh, You might know or remember that when Great Britain gave or handed over Hong Kong to China in 1997, they did that with a 50-year agreement that China would keep their hands off of Hong Kong and allow Hong Kong to develop independently. And that 50 years is not up obviously, it's up in 2047. Um, And the people in Hong Kong feel that China is trying to jump the gun, to take over Hong Kong completely before that year. And um, so uh, these demonstrations are a way to show that they want democracy in the country and they want um, uh, to have China keep their hands off of Hong Kong. So that's uh, that's a, a third reason. A fourth reason is that the Western world has decided to pay attention to human rights in China, uh, to kind of get under China's skin, and uh, to declare sanctions on Chinese officials um, for violating human rights. The human rights that they're violating are especially the rights of the Muslim minority in China as a whole and the Muslim uh, majority-minority in the western province of Xinjiang, where China has set up uh, huge re-education camps and where they forced the Muslim uh, Uyghur people into those camps to try to de-Muslify them, to try to um, force them to um, uh, adopt a kind of a Chinese way of life, and to uh, so-called re-educate them. Um, So these sort of concentration camp light places are ones which the West has objected to and uh, which is trying to shine a light on them. And uh, so that's that's a fifth reason. The COVID crisis, of course, originating in China is another one where people are pointing their fingers at China and saying that, China was not fast enough to release the true nature of this disease and therefore the West and the rest of the world didn't have the time to prepare for it. Um, You know, some some conspiracy theorists have uh, tried to make the case that um, uh, China has tried to infect the world on purpose somehow and um, that uh, uh, this virus was one which was created in a lab and then sprung on the world as a way of Chinese uh, domination. These ideas, of course, are pretty far-fetched. And uh, in in relative terms, China did release information quite soon after the virus uh, became widespread. They thought they could keep it under the carpet or under the rug for a while. Once they realized how serious it was, they did get out there pretty quick and give the world the exact um, uh, structure of the virus so that the world could work on a, on a cure. Um, so, you know, in a nutshell, these are some of the reasons why China has uh, made the news lately. And this sort of tension between China and the West of the world, especially the U.S., is ongoing and will continue uh, until uh, changes in leadership happen, uh, maybe on both sides. Um, let's just also look at the role of China in the world economy. Um, it's it's unbelievable to think how quickly China has progressed from the very beginning until today. So. Um, uh China, as uh, just to give a touch of a background, um, China was um, um, a kingdom which ended uh, around the time of the First World War. A republic was created after the First World War. Um, this republic uh, was uh, attacked by Japan in the 1930s. And there was a kind of an ongoing civil war going on in China, and a war against Japan at the same time, from the 1930s up until 1949. So in China, there were two forces which fought against each other, the nationalist forces and the communists. In 1949, after the Japanese were defeated, the communists did prevail, and they set up a People's Republic of China in 1949 which has been ruling China until today. The uh, so-called refugees from the losing side moved to Taiwan and set up a, a kind of a alternate Republic of China in Taiwan, which uh, remains independent from China under sort of Western rule also up until today. Hong Kong was a, always a part of China, and uh, the British took it over in 1842 in order to use that port as a means of selling um, opium to China. Now, the reason the British wanted to do that was because Chinese goods, silk, tea, porcelain, uh, and other things were very valuable in the Western world, And Britain didn't want to pay real money for these things. And because Britain controlled India, which grew a lot of opium, Britain figured out that if they could get the Chinese people addicted to opium, they wouldn't have to spend real money to buy Chinese goods. And so they uh, used Hong Kong as a port to import opium. Uh, They were much stronger than the Chinese government, and so they forced the government to accept this. They also, uh, in 1897, signed a 99-year lease over territories to the north of Hong Kong. And, you know, if you add 99 to to 1897, you get 1997. And when that lease ran out, China said it wasn't renewing it. And that was the reason why Great Britain decided to hand over the rest of Hong Kong, which was too small to, um, to sort of live on its own. That's the, that's the reason why uh, Britain decided to, to hand over Hong Kong. But they added this 50-year kind of a grace period because they wanted to assure the Hong Kong people that nothing in their lives would change immediately. And in a sense, nothing really did. There was a hope on the side of Great Britain that by China ruling over Hong Kong, they would be inspired by the democracy inspired by the free enterprise, inspired by the wealth of Hong Kong, and rather than Chinese values taking over Hong Kong, they were hoping that Hong Kong values would take over China. Um, and um, in a certain back-handed way, it is sort of half, half worked. China, after years of misrule by Mao and tremendous poverty, uh, way back in the very late 1970s decided to change direction and to open up their economy to a sort of an in sort of a sort of a local free enterprise system it 's unbelievable to think that you know maybe a short forty years ago that the average Chinese per capita income was only two hundred and fifty dollars a year per person, and the total Chinese economy amounted to under 1% of the total world economy. Today, today, uh, the total Chinese economy, depending on how you measure it, is almost as close as the total American economy. So that, in other words, the weight of China as a whole in the economic world is almost the same weight as America's is in the world. Now, of course, China has four times as many people as the United States, so therefore, per person, the United States is still much wealthier, but if you look at the total amount of uh, wealth in the country and production in the country, the two economies are not all that different. Uh, China today is has 16% of the total world economy, so that's how big it is going from from a fraction of 1% to 16% is a huge jump in a very short amount of time. Very, very short. Today, China is the world's leading importer of gas, oil, iron ore, um, uh, what else? Uh, Coal, um, many many different food uh, supplies, Um, And it is also the world's biggest exporter of all kinds of manufactured goods from, uh, you know, thumbtacks to, uh, to, uh, you know, uh, uh, huge, sophisticated trains uh, and everything in between. So they have really uh, grown so tremendously that uh, the world economy today Especially in the time of COVID, is so dependent on China. China was the first country to to suffer from COVID, and they were also the one to climb out of it. And so, the economy of China today, as we speak in this month of July, is not far away from what it was a year ago. Uh, the only real huge growth in the world is today from China. So, everybody from oil producers to to uh, producers of, um, of just about everything else, wants to sell to China. You might be surprised to hear that General Motors, the, the America's biggest car company, more than half of their sales today are in China. Uh, companies like Starbucks, they have thousands and thousands of shops in China. So China is not only a source of um, goods to send to the rest of the world, but it's also a source of consumers that buy, buy goods owned by companies in the rest of the world. And uh, also a source of goods that are sent to China from the rest of the world. Um, the luxury uh, makers of Prada and Gucci and uh, uh, all those others, Louis Vuitton, uh, they depend on China for most of their growth because the rest of the world's growth has gone down so much because of the end of tourism and, uh, and COVID. And so China is an economic power in and of itself. They developed Huawei, which is a, a world uh, leader in telecommunications, and uh, they are a world leader in um, transportation. They are the biggest consumers today of airplanes, they have the largest network of high-speed rail anywhere in the world. And uh, they have also developed a, um, what they call the Belt and Road Initiative to lend money to especially third world countries, to buy Chinese expertise, to allow those countries to develop uh, infrastructure like railways, ports, power plants, etc., and uh, there has been so many billions of dollars lent by China to these third-world countries that in many cases, China is the chief trading partner of, of many, many, many of these third-world countries. Um, so to give an idea, in 2005, China loaned the world $10 billion, uh, uh, $10 billion to, for development. In 2016, they loaned loaned the world $275 billion. So China is not only speaking with words, but it's also speaking with money. It's using that money to its advantage to um, assure itself uh, sources of raw materials, gas, for example, oil, for example, um, raw materials, agricultural products, Uh, But it also uses that money to build markets around the world for Chinese goods. It also uses that money to give jobs to Chinese people going overseas to build all of those infrastructures. And it uses that money to influence governments to support China in international um, conflicts and at the United Nations. Uh, so, for example, there was just a vote recently, uh, I think, criticizing China for human rights, and pretty well all the third world voted with China and said it's none of the United Nations business. So, China has been an active player around the world to, in a soft way, not in a hard way, but in a soft way, to um, extend its influence. It's only used sort of the hard way in very local. Uh, as I was mentioning before, local border areas close to China itself um, so you know and that is a kind of a bit of an introduction to um the uh role of China today. Uh, how is it that that uh, China has managed to come into conflict with the United States? Um, uh, over so many of these issues. And, uh, you know, there's a kind of explanations on the macro level and on the micro level. On the macro level, the United States has always been suspicious of other countries trying to challenge the U.S. either militarily or economically. Now, in the days of the Cold War, Russia, by taking over Eastern Europe, by building up its weapons, by building a nuclear um, arsenal, was seen as challenging the United States on a military level, but certainly not on an economic level. China, on the other hand, uh, their order was reversed, that they were building up a military but a military which was much more modest in its uh, kind of size, but by building up a world economy, as I was mentioning, uh, and by being seen as an alternative to the United States by many countries in the third world, uh, are challenging what the United States once thought was their exclusive right to uh, boss everyone around. Um, Um... And the power of China is such that when President Trump decided to uh, so-called punish China for its um, misdeeds, economic misdeeds, China hit back and hit back very hard. The source of America's annoyance with China over its economic misdeeds has a lot to do with the idea that China is a communist country, a state-controlled country, where the economic model is a mixture of private and public enterprise. So in other words, in China, the state owns and controls banks, the state owns and controls major corporations in the country, Uh, The state will lend those corporations money at very low and advantageous rates. The state will prop up those companies from going bankrupt. So for that reason, the state can in a way undercut the market forces that would normally play in these situations. And so the United States feels that China is an unfair trading partner undercuts its prices to put American businesses out of business and then to take over the market that's left by those businesses. Um, They also feel that, of course, China, enjoying a much lower labor rate, uh, labor price, uh, has a natural advantage over the United States in that way. And uh, China having developed its own sort of shipping, ports, insurance, uh, and other infrastructure areas, and airlines (coughs) can deliver goods to the United States cheaper than the goods can be made in the United States. And therefore, uh, the United States felt that they were at a great disadvantage. The disadvantage was seen in the balance of trade between the U.S. and China. So in other words, China was exporting to the US twice as much as it was importing from the US. And according to President Trump, this is cheating. Um, And he wanted uh, an end to it. So he started off a tariff war by putting tariffs on Chinese goods to uh, make them more expensive coming into the US. Now, China, of course, did the same thing on American goods. But since more goods come into the U.S. from China than go to China from the U.S., a tariff war, a a tit-for-tat tariff war would be won by the U.S. So China tried a different tactic. What they did was they said, fine, we're just not going to buy any farm goods from the U.S. that we could source outside of the U.S. Farm goods like, for example, soybeans, like, for example, corn. Uh, Like, for example, uh, chickens uh, or pork. Now, uh, it so happens that all those goods are produced in Republican-dominated Midwestern states, and China's idea was to turn these people against Trump himself. Uh, What Trump did was he said, okay, if that's the case, what we'll do, the American Treasury will pay farmers for all the money that they've lost from the China trade. And not only that, but we'll double down and add tariffs on even more Chinese goods. So China added more tariffs on American goods. And so it went. So this war was a kind of, I would call it a stalemate. There was no clear winner in this tariff war, but China was strong enough. The point is that China was strong enough not to fold under all of this intense American pressure. And China was strong enough because its economy was varied enough. They didn't depend on one export like coffee or uh, or oil or uh, you know another rubber or any of these one one uh, one hit wonders that some of the rest of the world depends on. China's economy is so varied that they ha- they are uh, you know industrialized. They they have industrial exports. They have um, clothing exports, they've got, uh, you know, uh, all different kinds of exports. So they're not reliant on one specific thing. And they also have customers all around the world that could pick up some of the goods that uh, the United States was not buying. And needless to say, they could find soybeans in Argentina and Brazil just as easily as they could find soybeans in the United States. And uh, Argentina and Brazil, Stepped up to the plate in a huge way, and and you know more than tripled their exports to China of these agricultural commodities that the US, that China was buying from the U.S. So in a certain way, I would say Trump's trade war against China was more of a loss for the states than for China. He thought that the, the, he could force U.S. manufacturers to make things in the U.S. that the U.S. is buying from China, but Everyone knew that this was not true because um, because of the tremendous difference in the cost of production of these various goods. China could uh, pay the tariff and just lower the prices of their goods, or they could pay the tariff and lower the value of the Chinese yuan, uh, which they also did, so as to diminish this uh, the damage that the tariff was doing. And China has all the infrastructure in place to make clones and to make everything. It's a whole technique and a whole production. You can't just reproduce it out of nothing in the US. So almost no goods that were imported from China uh, were then made in the US. But what did happen is that many goods that were made in China, got shifted over to other Asian countries, such as Vietnam, or the Philippines, um, or Cambodia, or Bangladesh in the in sense of clothing. And uh, China just pushed out its less profitable um, uh, exports to those countries. So in a sense, the United States did those countries a favor. Um, How about us? How about here in Canada? What's our beef with China? We've had uh, China, you know, badmouth us. We've had China criticize us. And of all crazy, crazy things, we did the United States a favor by arresting the daughter of the founder of Huawei. I mean, Huawei is like the Microsoft of China. And we arrested her not because she did anything wrong to Canada. She was a permanent resident in Canada. I think she has a huge place in Vancouver. But she was wanted on an American warrant. Now, what was the reason for the warrant? Well, uh, America said that Huawei was breaking the sanctions that the United States had imposed on Iran. And therefore, they wanted her arrested. And Canada, of all idiotic things, in my opinion, did it and arrested her and said, well, we can't let her go because she's wanted in the States. What, the, what China did immediately was, of course, arrest two Canadians for no good reason. Uh, they um, severely restricted um, other ties between Canada and China, and uh, they cost our economy a lot of money. For, in essence, Canada being America's sort of uh, messenger in this whole dispute about Iran, of all of all crazy things. It goes to show how, how nuts things could be. I think Canada should have and still should release this Miss Meng, send her back to China and say to the United States, listen, uh, we have no beef in this quarrel, and uh, if you want her, you know, you sue Huawei and don't uh, bother with us. But uh, I think this proved to be an error uh, by our Prime Minister and an error which uh, he can't figure out how to get out of. But, you know, that's that's a minor, Canada is a very minor player in the world when it comes to China. Um, China also uh, tries to um, sort of, improve its image by, among other things, sending COVID equipment to the rest of the world, including COVID masks to New York state. So at the beginning of the uh, pandemic, when uh, the New York state was the most heavily hit and when they had literally no PPE, protective personal equipment, China sent huge plane loads of stuff to New York You know, with a nice little slogan, a gift from the people of China. And, um, you know, they are able to, in a way, manipulate their image to make it more positive by using economic um, uh, gifts, which they have, which they're able to do. China, in the next stage, what they could do, what they may do, is what they're trying to do is to slowly move away move the world away from using the US dollar as a means of exchange, which benefits the United States tremendously, and possibly to start using the Chinese money in a basket along with the Euro and the Japanese yen, uh, and along with the dollar, to make sort of a a basket of currencies which would become the world's uh, means of exchange. Uh, They are not at that level yet. But the Chinese economy is so huge, the amount of money which is stashed away in Chinese banks is so huge that uh, eventually uh, this may happen. And just to remind you why all that money is stashed in Chinese banks, it's because China exports so much more than they import that the difference ends up in Chinese banks. Uh, Some of that money ends up being lent to the United States. So... Uh, The United States, uh, I'm I'm not, you know, looking exactly at the last figures, but they were around $6 trillion in debt, meaning that the United States owed the world and itself $6 trillion. And that amount, as you know, is going up daily because of this COVID crisis. China itself has and still has somewhere in the neighborhood of $2 trillion of US bonds. That means China took the money that they got from all this world trade surplus, converted it, it was in US dollars. They went ahead on the world market to the US and bought $2 trillion worth of US Treasury notes and other debt. That means that the US is in hock to China for $2 trillion. It's never good to owe people that much money, or maybe it is because, you know, what's China going to do? China could easily take that money and say, we want, you know, we want to get paid back. And the U.S. would not find it very easy to find the money to pay it all back. Of course, it would not benefit China to do that either because the value of that debt would go down if it all gets dumped out on the market at the same time. So what I'm just trying to explain is that China is uh, not a paper tiger like Russia is from an economic point of view, that they've got tremendous amounts of resources. They have a very good organization of those resources. Uh, They have a, because they are a state run economy in the main, they can point to where they want those resources to be deployed. And if any of you have been to China uh, in the past few years compared to before 2000, you would know the difference is enormous. And I was in China in 2000, and to me, China had, 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 had been so advanced at that time. And in the last 20 years, they're even, you know, far more advanced than that. So, uh, that, that's from the, uh, from the economic point of view. Um, the other thing is that China, in making friends around the world, is not afraid to use techniques which are frowned upon in the rest of the world, such as paying bribes to politicians. Uh, such as muscling in, uh, you know, in different uh, areas of the economy. The Belt and Road Initiative that I mentioned before is an enormous undertaking, which started only in 2012. And it's, as I said, led to billions of dollars being lent out by China to the rest of the world to build all kinds of different projects. Now, in some cases, when that money is not paid back, China has liens on some of the things that they built. So in other words, if they lent money for a railway and the railway doesn't pay the money back, China could take over the railway. They already took over a port in Sri Lanka. Uh, China is managing the port, even by the way, China's managing the port of Haifa in Israel. Uh, They're managing the port of Piraeus in in Athens, in Greece. Uh, They built a railway in Kenya uh, from, the, uh, fr- from the Indian Ocean uh, all the way through Nairobi and going into um, Uganda and to be able to serve as a kind of a uh, trading road or pathway from the center of Africa to a port. Now, you know, Africa is so poor in part because their roads and infrastructure is so bad. And China is setting up electricity programs, power plants, railways, and, and, and ports, so that Africa could then trade on a more equal basis with the rest of the world. So Africa says, fine, you know, if you're willing to lend us the money, half the time China knows it'll never get paid back. And Africa is more than willing to go along with this. And, um, you know, uh, they benefit. The United States, on the other hand, if you look at the Trump administration has pulled back so much from uh, international aid, from international involvement, from even dealing with or talking to the rest of the world, that it's almost as if the Trump administration has left an open field for China just to walk in so easily and take uh, the number one place in the world. Um Another another development in China, which which was new, was the concentration of power um, in that country in the hands of one person, namely uh, Chairman Xi. China has always had a kind of a fiction, number one, a fiction that they are a democracy, which they never were. Number two, that the leader of the country, the chairman of the Communist Party, was picked by not the whole people of China, but through a series of levels going up and up and up by administrative divisions within the Communist Party, and that he was responsible to the rest of the leadership of the party. This sort of fiction was dismissed by President, by uh, Chairman Xi. Uh, there was also a, a habit or a policy of term limits in China, so that no person could concentrate too much power in their own hands. And they were limited then to two terms in office before they had to step down. Uh, Chairman Xi did away with that term limit. So in a sense, uh, this sort of concentration of power in the hands of one man in China uh, goes back. uh, The last example would be Mao Zedong himself, because after Mao Zedong... uh, Gave up power. There was no all-powerful chairman of the of the uh, Chinese Communist Party, which ran the country the way she uh, is running it. So he has he's a youngish man in his sixties, and he has no real block on his authority or power to do whatever he wants. And uh, dissidents, which pop up every now and then. Uh, are quickly dealt with, uh, you know, in, uh, by hard means or by soft means. Now, the, you know, at the same time, uh, China is not a simple country to deal with. It's so big. It's equal about in size of India today, around 1.3 billion people. Um, and a huge number of them have become middle class and educated. And, you know, many of you know that middle class and educated people are the ones who cause all the trouble to, um, to the leadership because they have the confidence, the knowledge, and the means to express their opinions and to, um, to uh, not be afraid of the consequences. Uh, although there hasn't been any sort of open rebellions against the system in China, there is plenty of talk on the internet about um, uh, the limitations of free, the, the, the lack of freedom in China, the censorship in China, um, and uh, you know uh, that kind of thing. Without being outward, without demanding for, without demanding, you know, change happen overnight. Um, some people say inevitably that China will change to become a more democratic country. And other people say, well, they're doing so well as it is, why uh, sort of change horses in midstream? Uh, So long as China can give its people a growing sense of economic security, so long as China can project its international uh, image as being powerful, um, there's no real reason to rebel and to demand changes. The other thing is, and maybe I'll finish with this, is that historically China has never been a completely united country because it's so huge. And they've always been uh, kind of uh, separate independent states uh, warring with each other in China. And that um, uh, the, uh, uh, the fear is that if real democracy ever developed in China, then the idea of separatism of different provinces could easily arise, and then all of China would break apart in some way or other. So, um, you know, right now, I think the Chinese leadership are in a good, relatively good uh, phase, and the world is looking up and respecting China, all the more because President Trump has been such a failure in his leadership in the world. Um, and also, of course, because the United States is now so so involved in their own suffering that they have no time or energy to devote to uh, matters outside of their own country. So, uh, you know, that's a kind of a, we'll call it a thumbnail sketch of uh, what's going on in China. I have plenty more to um, to uh, elaborate on Hong Kong if people are interested, or on the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, uh, lots of different things. So um, if any of you have some questions, comments, um, feel free to ask me. And um, uh, you know, uh, there's so many interesting things that have been written these days about Westerners who've moved to China and are living there, uh, and are living there long-term. And they have such interesting insights as to how life is there and, um, you know, uh, how they manage to balance one, you know, their lives, uh, Western lives with Chinese lives.
0: Um, Hershey, I think we have Howard uh, ready to ask a question. Howard, go ahead. Don't they realize that that by getting out of the WHO, which they thought was a puppet of China, won't this make the WHO even closer to China by totally getting getting out of the WHO, the World Health Organization? Wouldn't they have been better off staying in it? You're talking
1: about the United States staying in? Yeah. Well, the World Health Organization is, first of all, a branch of the United Nations. Let's start by saying that. Um, And all the branches of the United Nations were meant to uh, kind of uh, provide, um, you know, international services to the rest of the the whole world, whether it's UNESCO or or the Security Council or or any of the branches of the United Nations. The World Health Organization of all organizations is supposed to be the most non-political of all. Because what could be political about health? You know, if you're talking about the refugee, uh, the refugee United Nations Refugee and Welfare Association, okay, you could say it's political because what is refugee, but health is health. Um, uh, President Trump is just a person who does not like or trust anybody outside the United States. He doesn't. He sure, surely does not believe that any organization outside the United States should have any jurisdiction inside the U.S. And that's why he pulled out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. That's why he wanted to pull out of NATO. That's why he wants to pull out of any U.S. international involvement. The World Health Organization is there to, you know, look after the health in the whole world. And yes, it's true that um, uh, China was the origin of the COVID crisis. Um, and, uh, you know, the World Health Organization uh, had its involvement in the sort of ongoing epidemic. But it certainly isn't a reason for the United States to pull out of the WHO. And I really think, if you, might, you want my real opinion, I think that President Trump just doesn't want to spend the money to, to uh, and the US was the largest contributor to the World Health Organization. But that money was not spent in the US. It was there to help poor countries look after their their needs. And President Trump just doesn't believe in that. So again, if there's a vacuum created, other groups are going to move in it to fill up that vacuum. And that's what
0: China did. OK, Howard, do you have another question or comment? Yeah, also, by, by treating what, what is the traditional ally so uh, uh, like Germany and Great Britain, isn't isn't the United States driving Western Europe into China's hands? Uh,
1: I think that's a good question, although I wouldn't say that it's driving Europe into Chinese hands. I would say that it's forced Europe to um, consider its own independence uh, in all kinds of ways, in military ways, in economic ways in political ways and you know Europe is also confronting the same sort of economic crisis and, finance, and, and, and health crisis um, but once it's over I, I think personally I think that the rest of the world is just holding its breath and waiting for Trump to be defeated so that things can quote go back to normal. Now what I think is clear though is that in terms of the United States China relationships normal is not going back to what it once was. I think that President Trump has convinced the American people as a whole that China is playing unfairly. And I think the world knew that China was playing unfairly. For example, you know, if companies wanted to establish, uh, let's say manufacturing in China, that they would have to give over the secrets of their processes to China uh, or, or to the Chinese branches of those companies. Um, and I think that uh, the world knew this. It wasn't as if Trump kind of found this out, but the world figured out that this was just a price to pay to do business with China. And I think that uh, the, the world, and especially the United States, now understands that, that they have to be tougher with China Than they were before, and even President, even uh, I was going to say future President Biden, we'll we'll call him uh, the uh, the Democratic nominee, has also said tough things about China because I think it reflects what most of the people in the United States feel that China has been taking advantage of the U.S. in an unfair way. Um, So there is no great love affair between China and the U.S. now as. There may once have been, which, in fact, it was Nixon who started it, you remember, by visiting China uh, way back when, in the 70s, when China was the boogeyman of the communist world. But, you know, Nixon was smart enough to figure out that uh, China was going to open up and uh, the U.S. might as well take advantage of it. By the way, the U.S. still sells China a huge amount of airplanes. One thing... China has not yet really done was to um, build their own uh, model of airplanes, which were as good as the Airbus or, or, or Boeing, and uh, China was a huge customer for both those planes. Huge. I mean, really huge.
0: Okay. Thank you, Howard. Thank you. Um, Hershey, about the, um, the Hong Kong uh, security law that was passed on July 1. Um, right. Which will make it a crime to basically say anything bad about the Communist Party in China or protest in any right. way, and it's 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 vague Dreaten, enough that people
1: threaten the security of China in a way yeah right,
0: and and it's vague, and people even the uh, the chief executive in Hong Kong can't even uh, tell the public what it means because it's it's a bit vague in how it'll be prosecuted. What do you think the sort of the long term impact of that is on Hong Kong on you know people leaving Hong Kong? Um, yeah, That's a,
1: that, it, it's an excellent question. I'm going to expand it by saying that um, when China took over Hong Kong back in 1997, China needed Hong Kong far, far more than Hong Kong needed China. And um, Hong Kong was the world's, was the door to go out to the rest of the world. It was a place where Chinese companies could list their stocks To be traded all around the world. It was a place where Chinese companies could open bank accounts in Hong Kong and deal financially with the rest of the world. Um, China's economy in 1997 was tiny compared to what it is today. Uh, There was no real big high-tech manufacturing sector in China at all back in 1997. And all of that changed. So uh, today, China has a stock exchange which is bigger than Hong Kong stock exchange. China has all the high tech industries you want in China. Um, China does not need Hong Kong nearly as much as it did way back at that time. So the kind of balance there has, sh- has, has shifted. Um, there was a thought even in China in 1997 that Hong Kong would spread liberal values into China and that would be good for China. Today, uh, the Chinese Communist uh, Administration uh, sees that as a threat. And they see the internet as a threat because the ideas can pass so quickly. So that's why why they are taking this hard line with Hong Kong. there's no question to my thinking that, that this will make diminish Hong Kong's importance. That um, the financial center that Hong Kong was, was there because of completely free trade. No, almost no taxation, no um, uh, tariffs on imports. Hong Kong as a port was one of the world's biggest ports. The airport was one of the world's biggest airports. It was like a free trade center for the whole world and by china sort of putting the heavy hand on it it's going to take away that status and and hong kong will really be affected a lot in that way you might remember in the 1997 crisis and the takeover crisis thousands and thousands of hong kong people came to canada got canadian citizenship and moved back to hong kong to put their canadian passport their canadian passports in their back pockets as a kind of a as a safety um, security blanket. And now I think a lot of them will be coming here uh, because they will feel that their lives in Hong Kong are not the same as they once were. Um, uh, So from that point of view, uh, Hong Kong's status as a whole, both economically and politically, is going to be diminished. But like I said, they were living on, on borrowed time anyway. Because by 2047, there was no guarantee that anything would change, and would just Hong Kong could be just absorbed into China as as another uh, another province. So um, you know, and you know, in in sort of the long term, uh, 27 years is not you know it's long, but it's medium term. It's not long term. So you know, in in that sense, nothing seems to be going on the up in Hong Kong in that, in that way, you know, unless um, China itself changes. And so far we don't see any indication of that.
0: If you have a question for Hershey and you're uh, listening on Zoom, you can press the raise hand button and we can unmute your microphone or you can ask your question. If not, um, Hershey, do you have uh, anything you want to say about either the topic today or next week's topic or anything else?
1: You know what? It's, it's, you know, to to sort of choose a topic for, um, you know, I was thinking, um, you know, if you like this sort of format of doing country by country, I could do India for next week because of that war uh, in the country, because India today is number three in the world in COVID, and because it's such an interesting place so, um, if you like that idea, I can speak about India next week, or uh as you could sort of maybe tell I, I i i on the first on on the first blush, I sort of avoid talking about American politics simply because it's the news is so full of it, and you just open up the t v and you that's all you hear about but if somebody has some some uh, uh particular interest in in that, I'd be more than happy to talk about that as well. Um, so it all depends. Whatever sort of, you know, how grabs my attention, How that's should people, I would look at.
0: How should people contact you with their suggestions?
1: Um, well, either through you, you know, through Code St. Luke or Angela, and she can email me or uh, they could email me. Uh, my email is simplehersheedwaskin at yahoo.com, so they could email me in that way also. So, Uh, you know, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't matter. Maybe through Code St. Luke might be the easiest, but, um, you know, I'm always open to all kinds of suggestions and, you know, I've spoken on, I could speak about pretty well, pretty well, anything, you know, religion, politics, history, geography, sociology, language, religion, just about
0: anything. Okay. Well, thank you very much, uh, Hershey. And uh, for those listening in today, what we can do uh, today is what we uh, normally do. We uh, play um, a podcast uh, following this show, uh, an external podcast, and we can do that today. And the theme would be uh, China as well. This was a daily podcast talking about Hong Kong. So it fits uh, perfectly with... That
1: fits. That fits.
0: Okay. Have a great day and we'll get the podcast going in just a moment. Okay, great. Bye-bye. Well, that is today's episode of the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service and Podcast. Thank you to our guests and thank you to you for tuning in today. If you're listening on the 2 p.m. call-in, we have another special item for you. Have a great day.